adversaries are relentless, and they're only getting smarter, faster, and more sophisticated. Knowing their game is the only way to beat them. That's why we're here. Learn what it takes to protect against even the most sophisticated attacks. Welcome to the Adversary Universe podcast. Hey, Christian Rodriguez here, wishing everyone a great holiday season. If you've been listening throughout the year, you've already heard an incredible lineup of topics via an intel-rich journey with Adam, some thought-provoking guests, our producers, and you, our listeners, responsible for tens of thousands of downloads across the globe. So, thank you so much for your support, and we can't wait for the next batch of episodes in 2024 with even more guests, exciting topics, and opportunities for our listeners to engage. Well, for this episode, we're going to replay highlights from our best moments in the podcast series by winding back to a discussion on artificial intelligence. This is the Adversary Universe Podcast. I think it's important that we address the elephants in the room. And I know that there's definitely some more technical listeners out there that are going to be waiting to see if we hit this point early on. And let's do it now, which is that there is a profound difference between what we call AI and the things that people are are hearing about in the news, generative AI, large language models and things of that nature and machine learning. And so you you already mentioned, you know, synthetic voices. Well, synthetic voices really is machine learning. It's not artificial intelligence in the in the purest kind of form. What you're doing is taking clips of sound. And Mm -hmm. I've I've played with this quite a bit. You can you can take For example, Christian Rodriguez's voice here, and I can upload it to any number of of things that are out there. And with just a couple of seconds, really, of audio recording, and certainly there's enough here in the adversary universe to to make this happen. I'm not saying I have Christian Rodriguez in a box, but I have Christian Rodriguez in a box. And you (laughs) uh, you can effectively train a machine learning algorithm using that voice data, a couple of seconds, or the more you have, the better it gets, and build a synthetic voice, a text-to-speech voice engine to replace Christian Rodriguez if you wanted to in a podcast. Oh, wow. First of all, that does that does sound it scary. Very uncomfortable. It does uh, sound uncomfortable. a little unsettling because I just feel like this is actually happening on the back end right now. So and for the provert, it's like five dollars a month. <laughs> oh my god! Christian's been up since four a.m. So right now, <laughs> thinking, is this real? Am I, so, am I, I a machine voice? I'm questioning. Am I real right now? Am I an AI? What is going I've on? I've done my job, folks. Exactly. Is it real me sitting on a beach sipping Mai Tais right now? This got super weird. <laughs> this got really weird. Learning, okay, so. back to ML. Yeah. yeah. By, by the way, thanks for just, just as a side note, thanks for clarifying that because as I mentioned, when the FBI or any major law enforcement agency or intelligence reporting agency publishes a report with major headlines that talks about like AI voice gen- generators are kind of the new, you know, criminal uh, go-to, right? I think it's very poignant for you to, to highlight the fact that it is an ML engine versus an AI engine. And there's very distinctive differences between the two, right? And, and the capabilities and the techniques are, are different, right? So yeah. I think if you break it down, the threat landscape from an AI machine learning algorithmic perspective, you have generative AI and mm-hmm. large language models. And those are useful 
in a couple of different use cases. The first one being that if you're not a native speaker in a particular language, you can use in your language or perhaps in a more disjointed kind of broken Google Translate version to ask the LLM, the generative AI, to produce an email. And I've, I've done this demo a few times where I ask it to create an email for me to invite somebody to a event. Maybe it's on artificial intelligence and I want them to be a speaker at my event and I'd like to leave a link so I could give them the invite to it. And if you craft that just right, you can actually get things like ChatGPT to produce a beautiful phishing email effectively for you. And you just pop in your link and you're, you're off and running. So right off the bat, a threat actor can use this technology to really create compelling content that will really create a, a realistic experience for the target. And that's the first use case, I think, that, that we could talk about. The second one that I think a lot of people are, are also talking about, and I hear this from a lot of boards and C-suites when I talk to them, is can they use something like ChatGPT to create the world's most deadly malware, mm -hmm. right? Like the most yes, effective, nasty malware. Well, I'll give you an example where I've kind of tested the capability there. I asked ChatGPT to write me a Python function to send questions to ChatGPT, right? So I could just do it from the command line. And ChatGPT gave me this really well-written Python function. And I excitedly threw it into my, my terminal to run it in Python and quickly found that I didn't have the necessary library to interact with ChatGPT. It was an open AI library that it, it told me I needed to use. And as you look through the, the function, it actually had the, the library. Yeah. It had function calls for within that library. Yeah. Right? So oh, you resolve yeah. the API key and to do all of this stuff. And I was like, wow, I, I don't have this library. Let me quickly, you know, add it. I'll, I'll use yeah. pip and uh, add this library and, and get going. And it wouldn't install. And so I do a little bit of research only to find out that that library doesn't exist. This is what we call a hallucination. Oh, wow. It Wait, so it, it so it, it made up this the existence of this library and function library. calls. Yeah. It was a it was it was like a pathological lie. Oh, that's so, so interesting. So it said, hey, uh, ideally, this is how you would call. You'd, you'd make a call to this API, but it, no, it wasn't exists. even ideally. It was quite literally the, you know, it, it said, here's the function for you to use. And so it, you know, without going too deeply down, uh, explaining Python on a podcast, you know, <laughs> the fact that it had not just uh, the library wrong, but non-existent functions oh. in that library, it thought through that, which is why I said it's pathological. podcast in itself is very much focused on understanding the tradecraft of adversaries and how they impact varying industries. How do you think healthcare can ultimately leverage intelligence to, against these threats that they're seeing? What are you seeing in terms of intelligence consumption on the healthcare side? We have customers that, again, like if you think about, if you want to build a bench of talent, one of the best ways to do it is to have a meaningful threat intelligence program. The other interesting, and again, I think this That's is great. interesting too, now, of all the hierarchy of needs, can they afford to spend their money there? But if you're trying to maintain and retain talent, there is no better way than to build a threat intelligence-based program into your uh, program. Into your it, it really yeah. does. Every customer, to a degree, is getting the benefit that everything CrowdStrike does is adversary-centric. 
everything we do is designed to stop a breach. And again, we now broadly define stopping a breach. We're, you know, originally it was stopping a mega breach. Now we're talking about stopping destructive attacks, crypto mining. We're talking about stopping them from stealing your data, destroying your data. We want to keep them from doing what they want to do. And again, to do that, it's about being adversary centric. It's about having visibility. It's about having continuous monitoring, being able to action. And because we go back to that original concept, these programs need help. I think the best hands are our own. Our ability to provide our Falcon Complete program is what over half of our customers are now doing in healthcare. And they're doing it not because they can't do the job, but doing the job 24 hours a day, 365, and really dealing with the revolving door issues and the cyber risk issues. Our ability to do this at scale uh, is probably the proudest uh, achievement we've had in, in, our, in our vertical. Yeah, well, adversaries don't sleep and neither do we, right? And that's basically our mantra here. Let's talk about vulnerabilities. In this episode, we've been covering a lot of the trends and some of our observations on vulnerability intelligence. Uh, Adam Meyer shared some really great feedback on how areas like disclosures for vulnerabilities, you know, have, have been interesting, and, you know, in terms of timing and the impact to different organizations and enterprises. But I don't really want your take on, on a few areas. So for example, like what would you foresee in your experience so far, especially with your access to the intelligence that we publish? What do you think is more dangerous to the average enterprise, like a zero day or a known vulnerability? Yeah, that's a good question. I'd say that for my historical precedents, I probably had more activity threat briefing on zero days because, you know, they get way more publicity. They're way more mysterious. They're way more intimidating. There's really no way to plan for them. But I'd say that to the average enterprise, a known vulnerability uh, affects the, the largest number of customers that we deal with. You know, mm -hmm. it requires a lot of specialized knowledge and resources for an adversary to even discover and research and weaponize a zero day in the first place. And then on top of that, you know, once they start to weaponize that zero day, they increase the chances of being detected. And those same targeted, you know, victims understanding that that's a vulnerability at getting publicized and then, you know, mitigating controls getting put in place. But compare that to, say, like a known vulnerability where a vendor or, you know, a hacker might disclose a vulnerability affecting a product. Now adversaries basically have the ability to conduct their own research and basically develop exploits that might be even tied to information that was released by that vendor. Mm, so, like, let's imagine they might push changes to their, say, like open source code or release a patch that talks about certain configurations that are required. They're basically giving out threat intelligence to the adversary that give them, you know, more information to further exploit those weaknesses and capitalize on those efforts before a patch might even be issued. Oh, wow. So it's almost uh, taking the lazy man's route out, right? Saying, I'll <laughs> wait for the white hacker to yeah. basically post this update and I'll just kind of start my work from there versus like a very well-organized e-crime group or maybe even nation state group that finds, that has the resources rather to invest in those zero days that could be kind of a, a silver bullet that they burn through very quickly. Yeah, exactly. And um, from like a numbers perspective, I think the majority of vulnerabilities disclosed last year were even zero days. They were known vulnerabilities. You know, lots of times that data that's being moved to the cloud, no one's keeping track of what it is. No one's classifying it. 
No one's necessarily even reviewing IM policies in a very strict level. If they are, there's very little additional hygiene that's put into understanding the way that those IAM policies are configured. Mm. And those are just, all you're doing is you're moving your very big on-premise issue that you have and you're just saying, I'm going to move it into the cloud and I'm going to put very little effort into understanding what the actual issues are underlying root cause, potential of a root cause of this issue is. And I just think that's very difficult. Moving your data into the cloud doesn't mean that it's secure. And I think that's a very big misconception. So Adam, just to wrap up on the topic of data extortion, we talked about adversaries coming in through the front door, the, the reduction in ransomware activity, and then the move it uh, vulnerability that was heavily exploited by varying adversaries. And so I think this also lends itself to maybe, you know, global supply chain issues and third-party compromise campaigns that we've seen historically be very successful. What do you expect to, or what, what do you think we can see in the next 12 to 18 months when it comes to trends and this type of behavior? I think that we could expect to see the continued move towards data extortion. I think that threat actors are, you know, a couple of the, the financials there, first of all, that makes sense. A lot of these threat actors are affiliates of ransomware as a service. Ransomware as a service takes 20 to 30% off the top. If they move to data extortion and they're able to make the same amount of money or roughly the same amount of money, they're saving 20 to 30% fees that they'd be paying to that platform. The other side of it is the complexity, right? The technical complexity becomes much easier if you're just stealing the data and then threatening to disclose it. Other changes or environmental factors, I think that we'll continue to see threat actors moving in this direction because it's just easier, it's faster. And ultimately, there's less cost of goods sold, if you will. If you think about the SaaS or RAS model there, where they're paying that fee, you know, they're making 20 to 30% more each time with that extortion. And I think as well with the move towards cloud and more organizations putting data in the cloud, but also not necessarily having the right security measures in place in their cloud will continue to embolden those threat actors. So I think that we'll be keeping a close eye on this trend, but it's one we've been watching for a while. And I think that the inertia is that it's moving in that direction. Yeah. Any last parting words for our listeners on ransomware versus data extortion versus saving the world? I'm all about saving the world. We are saving the world. We are saving the world one freestyle at a time. Here <laughs> There's plenty of nuances, of course, with moving to the cloud, and that includes the misconfigurations, as you mentioned, uh, the identities that could ultimately be compromised or leveraged for initial access and persistence. I'm sure that there's the complexity of just new concepts to old operation models that don't necessarily translate very well into the cloud. And that, again, in itself leads to a big area of risk and ultimately maybe even gaps in security programs. What else should we consider about concerns with cloud conscious adversaries? Well, yeah, I was gonna say, it's, it's also worth noting that um, cloud, it doesn't have to just be the target of the attack, right? But we also see the increase in the use of cloud services for data exfil, for example, using things like OneDrive or various other cloud storage solutions to exfil data quickly and in a way that maybe an organization wouldn't be very closely attuned to. We also see some of the threat actors out there leveraging cloud services for command and control, 
because, you know, certainly if you have a super sketchy looking domain for command and control, that might be alerting to the security team. But by leveraging a cloud service or API or something like that for command and control, you can kind of hide that inside of a whole host of other types of traffic. So cloud isn't just the target, it's also the fabric for conducting the attack, meaning it could be used for the the command and control and the data exfil, and uh, also uh, as a lure to get somebody to think that they're logging into a cloud service. So there's there's lots of different aspects to that problem. Yeah, and it sounds like that problem isn't slowing down anytime soon. For our listeners interested in more information on cloud-conscious adversaries, go ahead and check out our 2023 Global Threat Report, which you can find on crowdstrike.com forward slash global dash threat dash report. So I'm sure you've seen it all and in the theme of the have I been breached question, right? What could you share on warning signs, right? That should alert someone to launching an investigation, right? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple ways in which organizations find out they've been breached. I think unfortunately nowadays, the number one way in which organizations find out they've been breached is their systems become encrypted. Sure. You know, they go into work and someone gets an alert that our ESXi cluster is down mm. or, you know, no users can access their desktops or servers in this enclave aren't working. And and that's the worst type of discovery that you can make, you know, once an actor has already achieved their objectives. Other, other warning signs or alerts from your security tooling. Too often do organizations receive alerts and they do not respond to them or they believe it's a false positive mm. or normal business activity. Um, or it takes them too long to respond. During an investigation, we go back and see, yes, you know, three months ago, you did have alerts for, you know, malware on your endpoints and you didn't do anything. Eventually, you know, your legacy AV caught up and cleaned it up, um, but it was too late at that point. The mm -hmm. adversary had used the, that access to gain, you know, legitimate credentials that they later accessed the environment with. And then, you know, another warning sign is uh, someone from, you know, the, the government or from law enforcement knocks on your door, mm -hmm. sends you an email or calls you. Those are very important things to take seriously. If uh, the likes of CISA or the FBI or, you know, others at DHS are reaching out to your organization and saying, hey, you may have a compromise. You really need to investigate that. You need to either engage your internal team or more importantly, engage an external team that has the expertise and experience uh, to respond to those types of alerts. I get this question asked all the time going into personal events and people ask me what I do and I tell them I'm cybersecurity and it all comes at some point someone says, oh, why is China hacking everybody? And I have to kind of give them a 30 second or a minute iteration of everything we're talking about right now. So unpacking this, I think, on this episode is fantastic. And I think the listeners deserve to hear this. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I do want to come back to understanding also in terms of the, the, the US DOJ, right? I know back in 2020, you mentioned this just now. They indicted multiple individuals linked to Wicked Panda. Uh, and it seems like it's becoming more common where DOJ is getting involved in chasing down these guys and the effort is being made. But, but what does that mean also? I'm very curious about in terms of our relationship with China, right? I feel like that is also going to be an agitator in some capacity. Well, I, I think it's a signal, right? Yeah. And so when DOJ does this, right, they're not going to arrest, in most cases, POA officers because they're not leaving China. They're not showing up at Disneyland in Orlando and being like, 
We're here for tourism. So, (laughs) So I think it's not about indicting them because they plan to get an arrest. It's sending a signal to China and it's saying, we know and knock it off, right? And so China is, for all of the things we've been saying, China is very conscious of the appearance and Mm -hmm. of how they are perceived. Perceived, yeah. They don't want to be seen in a negative light. They really want to portray themselves as being a responsible and thoughtful player in the international domain. And to that end, they get real nervous when people start talking about human rights abuses or cyber espionage or some of the things that you might associate with China. And so I think to the extent that you can argue why do these indictments, it's a tool that we have that lets us signal to China like, hey, this we know and and we don't like it. And so So that's kind of one of the tools. So if we put a big spotlight on their tradecraft and their activity and we're announcing publicly that these are the guys we're chasing because of all of these cyber offenses. Do you think the impact of that, even geopolitically with companies or rather with countries that are getting involved with China, do you think it makes them second guess those relationships? No, I think no? that's a whole other dynamic where, you know, yeah. depending on what country you're talking about, if there's either a financial reason that they are in espionage. They talk about things like mice, right? Money, ideology, compromise, and ego. And I think with some of these more autocratic type countries, they see the technology that China brings as being able to give them the type of complete control that they have in China, right? Being able to leverage some of the artificial intelligence that China is using for tracking individuals and for powering surveillance equipment and surveillance type technology. All of those things are very useful for autocratic regimes that want to maintain control. Other countries that have financial issues, right? So let's call that one ideology. On the, the back to that mice model, right? Money, right? Mm-hmm. If a country has economic woes and China's giving them cheap money, free money, offering to do all this stuff for them, then they're like, great, that that helps me, right? That helps my country, that helps my people, that helps me as a leader. And so you have the money component to it. And then you also have the aspect of China coming in and using to a certain extent that ego play with some of these different leaders and fanning them and showing them all this love and supporting them and bringing all these gifts and praise to them. So that's another tactic that they have. And then certainly they have human intelligence operations occurring in lots of these countries. And there is a a number that, that again, back to uh, Turbine Panda is one that there was a phenomenal DOJ indictment on which showed just how they're using human assets inside of companies all across the globe. In that instance, they implanted malware using a USB stick that was delivered by a human-controlled asset inside of one of these companies. And they actually, in that, they read a a CrowdStrike blog post that we put out years ago. This is all in the indictment. They read this blog post, and then they instructed the human to delete logs to make it so that the company couldn't find the malware. So oh, wow. yeah, there's, there's a lot going on when it comes to Chinese operations across the globe and how they're able to be efficient and effective. So between 2008 and 2010, a lot was going on within Iran. And what we started seeing, so I mentioned the hacktivism, I think this is an important uh, point. 
in 2010, let's call it, the barrier to entry to understanding what was going on inside of Iran from a cyber perspective was speaking Farsi. Mm. Everything was in the open. There were, there were places like Ashayan Digital Forum and all of these kind of Farsi language underground communities where you, know, you could go in if you understood Farsi and start communicating with people. Oh, wow. After Stuxnet, 2010, 2011, 2012, we start to see some of those hackers in the underground forums getting rid of their their hacker identities. Uh, and, their monikers? So yeah. basically getting rid of those and exactly. going back into... And, and by the way, just for clarity, as you know, prior to Stuxnet, you know, we're tracking these groups as jackals, which is, you know, for those of you not familiar with the naming conventions, jackals would be considered hacktivist groups that we're tracking here. So were they all part of the, these, this overarching jackal community that we were tracking or were they still part of the kitten? I'll give you an example. In 2008, mm -hmm. let's say, um, there was a, a hacktivist kind of uh, activity where they defaced the website of the Grand Ayatollah um, Ali al-Sistani. And it was conducted uh, allegedly, I think, by an Emirati hacker, and it triggered a whole series of retaliatory website defacements between domestic Iranian hackers and neighboring countries uh, like the, the Emirates or, or Saudi or um, Oman, Jordan, places like that. Hmm. And this was really kind of when they cut their teeth. It was hmm. like in that 2008 was when a grouping of people who were hackers and geopolitics converged much like the new tagline you just dropped for this <laughs> podcast right and so 2008 was kind of the start of that change in 2009 you have that green movement in 2010 you have stuxnet and now folks that were kind of hackery and and had these hacker identities for you know thick like like the movie hackers almost, yep. right? Like that yeah. kind of identity. Yeah. They start dropping that and they start creating LinkedIn profiles and they start building companies that focus on pen testing. Oh, that wow. That focus on training, that focus on developing. And a lot of folks don't understand that there's a rich defense industrial base in Iran and there's some really smart, well thought out ideas coming out of there. And so at this time, I think a lot of these folks recognize that, hey, there's some, there's some money here. And there's, you know, now you start swirling some patriotism and some money together. And, and you know, there's, there's opportunity for folks who are entrepreneurial minded and they start building these companies. And that is really where things started because, you know, they needed to, one, have better defenses because they just got embarrassed with this malware that, broke all of their their centrifuges mm -hmm. and they want to you know start to prevent those types of things from happening so they got these defenses now so now you, you know people are coming up with defensive strategies and selling that and businesses to that end was, it, was that self-motivated though so think about this they so you're saying ultimately stuxnet is kind of this you know this 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 changing point and them saying well this hacktivist thing or these defacement, you know, uh, efforts are, they mean nothing in the grand scheme of what just, we just experienced with Stuxnet. Um, are these self-motivated initiatives to say, I'm no longer, I'm going to enable, I'm going to, you know, build a business off of this. I'm going to 
you know, educate and build a better defense program for individuals? Or is this also um, promoted by the government in some capacity via, via uh, Iran's uh, intelligence arm? Yeah, I would say all of it. I, I think it. that they, okay. you know, they yeah. understood that they, you know, and they, they did have capabilities from a, a, a offensive perspective within the government, you know, certainly before that. But I think this is when it became, you know, we need to, we need kind to of do eye opener. Better. Yeah. 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 Major opener. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. If you like what you're hearing, subscribe to our podcast and head over to CrowdStrike.com forward slash adversaries to learn more about the many bad guys we track. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Adversary Universe Podcast. This is the Adversary Universe Podcast.